This is Guns and Butter. What's the value of the planet Earth and everything in it? Right? Add it all up. Right? How much is the world worth? Uh, maybe a uh, hundred trillion, hundred and fifty trillion. I don't know, but it's something like that. It's sure not one quadrillion. So what they've done is created a mass of fictitious capital that doesn't have any correlative in the real world. It's a it's it's a it's a pyramid of paper promises to pay and fictitious capital and value that has no value, uh, which has now gone into not even the ionosphere. It's gone into interplanetary, interstellar space. Or you could think about it as a black hole. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Webster Tarpley. Today's show: the Bush World Economic Depression. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, Against Oligarchy, a collection of essays and speeches from the years 1970 to 1996, and co-author of George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography. He is also author of Surviving the Cataclysm, A Study of the World Financial Crisis, Your Guide Through the Greatest Financial Crisis in Human History. Webster Tarpley's latest book is Obama, the Postmodern Coup, The Making of a Manchurian Candidate. Soon to be published is Obama, the Unauthorized Biography. Webster Tarpley, welcome. Thank you so much. Almost one year ago today, we produced a series of economic shows, The U.S. Banking System, Too Big to Bail Out, and From Collapse to Disintegration, How to Stop the Depression. At that time, one year ago, you spoke in great detail about many aspects of economic disintegration, and at one point said the price of a barrel of oil has averaged over the last year at $70 a barrel. You attributed 25% of this price to speculation. Well, today $70 a barrel sounds pretty cheap. So how would you characterize the last year in economic terms? Well, it has been a year of uh, ongoing economic breakdown crisis, uh, ongoing dollar agony, banking panic, uh, and hyperinflation, which is what's going on in oil, food, and so many other areas. So that is indeed dollar hyperinflation, the things that we, that we talked about. Um, it was about a year ago, actually a year ago yesterday, that uh, Jim Cramer, of CNBC Business News gave his famous ranting speech uh, that you may remember where he demanded that Bernanke and the Federal Reserve do something to bail out Kramer's friends at Goldman Sachs, Bear Stearns, and the various trading desks of the Wall Street investment houses, the so-called investment banks. This was a uh, a huge event. It was a, it's something that two or three million people have viewed on uh, on YouTube, in addition to the normal listeners. And it was a demand that Bernanke realized that all considerations of inflation had to go out the window, and that what had to happen was emergency action to bail out these banks uh, that he represents, Kramer does, and to try to prevent what they call systemic crisis. Now, a systemic crisis would be 
the moment where the interbank payment system among the principal money center banks, it's called in the United States CHIPS, Clearinghouse Interbank Payment System. There's a process at the end of every trading day that they call settlement, where they tote up and uh, they make aggregates of everything that every bank owes to every other bank. And at the end, they add those up, and the pluses or minuses then get paid. If I owe your bank more than your bank owes me, then I've got to pay you the difference and so forth. But if one or more of the major players has gone bankrupt during the day, that system goes into crisis. It goes into tilt. And we've been at that point several times over the last uh, you know, 30, 40 years. But uh, he was talking about something like that happening in the short run. Now, in the meantime, we have had a process by which the Federal Reserve, responding, I guess, to this crisis that Kramer is talking about, has entered into the business of shoring up first the the banks in terms of, uh, of providing uh, lending at the uh, at the discount window and so forth. They have they have vastly increased the degree to which they are lending money, not only to banks but then to investment banks, and now also to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So we now have a very interesting situation. If you wanted to go out and start uh, you know, a steel mill or something obviously productive, you would have to pay a relatively high interest rate. But if you were a bankrupt financial institution seeking financing, you would get preferential low credit rates. Now, my idea of economics would be to do the opposite. If you want to do something productive, you should get the low government-subsidized credit rate, interest rate. And if you want to do something speculative, you should take your chances in the market. So we now have a completely dysfunctional system. And this, this came in a series of steps from uh, last August until, until now. The Fed has gone deeper and deeper into this, responding uh, to the crisis. The most recent uh, event of this was the decision to uh, to bail out Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, these two giant mortgage lenders and mortgage guarantors that go back to the New Deal. Fannie Mae, in particular, does. Founded in 1938, uh, they hold between five and six trillion dollars of mortgages or guarantee them. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, with regard to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, these these are corporate entities, aren't they? They're not they're not government institutions. They, they are what is called the hillbilly cousins of the U.S. Treasury. Uh, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Ginny Mae, which is in somewhat better condition, that's government national mortgage, and then Sally Mae, the student loan association. Uh, Fannie Mae was a government agency, which was then privatized in 1968. This is one of, the, one of the features of today's crisis. These things should never have been privatized. Privatization is insane in most cases. Privatization is a bonanza and a windfall for rich, parasitical oligarchs, but it leaves a situation like this where they then run wild, and this is a bipartisan running wild. A lot of the people who did this are... Uh, opportunists left over from the Clinton administration who who created the situation we now have. This never should have been been done, but there is what is called a residual guarantee. In other words, if I buy something that says U.S. Treasury bond, it says full faith and credit of the United States stands behind this. But if I buy a Fannie Mae stock or something like this, a bond in particular, not a stock, it seems to imply that there's, well, again, they call it an implied 
guarantee or a semi-guarantee by the Treasury. So there was that aspect uh, to it. You're sort of in a gray area. My recommendation for all of these entities is they should be seized and run as government agencies. If necessary, they can be put through Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Fannie and Freddie really ought to be. And that, that would be the way to, uh, to get out of it. Now, let's just, maybe we go back and, and try to chart the, the, the course of the crisis. Last August, at about the time we were talking, we had the first wave of banking panic, which was Countrywide Bank of California. It's a, uh, a bank that was part of this countrywide uh, mortgage lending entity, which has since been absorbed by Bank of America. And the head of that, Angelo Mozillo, turns out to be a guy who's giving sweetheart mortgages to all kinds of people, uh, including in the Obama campaign, but also to, uh, to Republicans. Anyway, that was the first wave of banking panic. The banking panic then went over to the British Isles uh, in October uh, and November, and it's actually kept going. And this is Northern Rock, the fifth largest bank in Great Britain. They also had branches in Ireland. So this is an international uh, banking panic. That crisis alone has already cost the British uh, taxpayers easily a hundred billion uh, pounds, say two hundred uh, billion U.S. dollars has gone down that particular uh, rat hole because they've tried to bail these entities out. Then around the middle of March, we had the panic run on Goldman uh, on uh, <laughs> on uh, Bear Stearns. Now, with the Bear Stearns case, it's not a commercial bank, but it's an investment bank, meaning just accounting house, right, an uh, investment house. But still, that was a panic run on them. And then we now have the Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac crisis. So we're, we're having these waves of banking panic every two to three months. Now, this is exactly what you had in the winter of 1932 to 1933, when, remember, uh, in the course of 1932 and into 1933, Every commercial bank and savings bank in the United States closed its doors. And by the time Franklin D. Roosevelt was inaugurated president, uh, in those days it was done in, uh, in March rather than in, uh, in January, by that noon, every form of economic activity had been shut down. They had all stopped. So we're in a comparable kind of uh, situation. In other words, this is a world economic depression. Let's call it the Bush economic uh, depression, because I guess he's, he's going to get credit for it. Now, fundamentally, what is happening? They say that it's um, a crisis of subprime mortgages. But as these characters on TV will also tell you, oh, but wait, mortgages that are in, uh, in delinquency are only 1, 2, 3 percent of the whole mortgage market, and that in turn is only a small part of the bigger market. So what, what is it? Uh, the mortgage crisis, subprime mortgage crisis, and credit crisis that we see, and banking crisis, these are features of the crisis of what I would call the one quadrillion dollar plus derivatives bubble. We've had a worldwide asset bubble going for, for many, many years. It has ups and downs, right? We've had the dot-com bubble. We've had the Latin American loan bubble before that. But fundamentally, we've got these derivatives. I estimate them at one quadrillion dollars plus now. The, the one quadrillion is already an old estimate. It's almost a year old. So maybe we're up to 1.2, 1.5 quadrillion. This means a quadrillion, of course, 1,000 trillion U.S. dollars. And actually, with the fall of the dollar, we may be pushing 
two quadrillion in terms of this bubble. It's very, very difficult to estimate because nobody wants to tell you about these things. Anyway, that's what's in crisis. Now, derivatives. Many people don't even know what they are. Uh, when this stuff is discussed on television, they talk about these instruments or these securities or uh, the, the need to unwind the book at Bear Stearns. What are they talking about? Derivatives by now are unmentionable. They were already uh, unmentionable. They were a four-letter word already uh, in the 1990s. There were some uh, mutual funds who would try to tell you that they had no derivatives. Derivatives mean paper based on paper. Uh, a, a common stock is supposed to be a piece of a company. A bond of that company gives you a, a, a claim on, on them if they go bankrupt. But what about paper that's not based on any economic activity in the real world, but based on another piece of paper. A future, an option, or an index fulfills that. So everything that says future, option, index, and now we've got all the combinations and permutations of those. We've got, you know, stock, futures, options, <laughs> indices, you know, pyramided. Uh, so that's one aspect of it. The other thing is the so-called structured note. In other words, when J.P. Morgan Chase and uh, Citibank sit down, they write each other derivatives contracts that are called structured notes that build in various dimensions of risk, they claim, but really represent bets about which way something is going. So one bank is speculating one way and the other bank is speculating the other way. So we've got over-the-counter derivatives and we've got exchange-traded derivatives and then we have what I call designer derivatives. Those would be the, the structured notes. All of this has reached this unbelievable level, or somewhere way over one quadrillion dollars. J.P. Morgan Chase, in particular, is the epicenter of this. They are easily in the 300 uh, trillion to 400 trillion of derivatives. Now, let's talk about trillions. What's the value of the planet Earth and everything in it? Right? Add it all up. Right? How much is the world worth? Uh, maybe a uh, hundred trillion. Uh, 150 trillion? I don't know, but it's something like that. It's sure not one quadrillion. So what they've done is created a mass of fictitious capital that doesn't have any correlative in the real world. It's a it's it's a it's a pyramid of paper promises to pay and fictitious capital and value that has no value. Uh which has now gone into not even the ionosphere. It's gone into interplanetary interstellar space. Or you could think about it as a black hole. That's uh, the way I would describe most uh, Wall Street investment houses today. You know the idea of the black hole, right? The gravity collapse and anything that gets near it gets sucked in and there's nothing that can be done once you've got a black hole, right? Anything that gets sucked in just makes the black hole stronger. Uh, if you look at these things like, like Bear Stearns, Bear Stearns was obviously a black hole already a year ago. Uh, and they kept it going, and they kept it, uh, uh, you know, funded by by the Federal Reserve uh, openly under the table, through the back door, every which way. Uh, but by uh, the 15th of March of this year, Bear Stearns uh, blew. It it was insolvent, and their their stock went from uh, 70 to two over the weekend of the Ides of March, and, and the stockholders were hysterical. Now think about what it means. 
the market, the market in quotes, the, there is no market, of course, it's a fiction. It's cartels, monopolies, and, and manipulation, and, and stock jobbers, and God knows what. But the market on Friday said it was worth, uh, you know, or, or one day at previous week, said 70, and then it went to two. So what does that mean about the market? Obviously, the market doesn't work. There's a very serious epistemological problem here. As human beings, we've got to know what things are worth. In other words, you've got to know what's valuable, so we pursue what's valuable and avoid things that are, that are deleterious and bad and, and toxic. Well, when it comes to toxic, all of these investment banks and banks represent a degree of toxicity which is absolutely beyond belief. Um, they are black holes. Now, what, what happened on the weekend of, uh, of March 15th was that a bigger black hole called J.P. Morgan Chase came along and ingested the smaller black hole, Bear Stearns. But that just made the black hole problem over at J.P. Morgan Chase even worse. And indeed, that's what I think most, most of these Wall Street commentators will tell you, that uh, that uh, absorption has not gone well for Jamie Dimon and his merry men over at, at J.P. Morgan Chase, because you look at their stock price, that was in the doldrums. Now, um, we're therefore in the presence of this, of this crisis. The problem with the quadrillion plus of derivatives was as long as there was positive cash flow or positive leverage, the leverage, and what I mean by leverage is when you um, mobilize, say you need... $100 to buy something, uh, if you can put up $10 of your own and buy it by get, taking out a loan of $90, then you've got, you've got 10 to 1 leverage. In other words, you've put in 10, and you've ended up with 100, so you've got 10 to 1 leverage. So you can mobilize more money by, by putting up some of your own and then borrowing more. When you get into the derivatives world, the, the leverages go up to 500, 1,000, and, and, and way beyond that. As long as there was a positive cash flow in this leveraged world of derivatives, the profits at the, that came out at the top of that pyramid were huge. They were astronomical. But now, what is called the mortgage crisis, or the subprime mortgage crisis, the credit crunch, in other words, everything that has happened between July, August of 2007 and now, means that this entire derivatives castle, castle, uh, Tower of Babel, has gone into negative leverage. So now, instead of pyramiding the profits at the top, the super profits and hyper profits, you've now got the losses being exponentially multiplied at the top. And that's essentially what's going on in the world economy. The one quadrillion plus of derivatives has gone into negative leverage, and they all run around screaming about this or that aspect of it, and the crisis unfolds. Uh, you know, it goes from one bank to another, one sector to another, one country to another, even. I'm speaking with author and economic historian Webster Tarpley. Today's show, The Bush World Economic Depression. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Let me ask you this. You, you mentioned the credit crunch, and you're talking about these uh, uh, multiple trillions in the credit crunch that's pyramiding downward, okay? But what, what about the credit crunch with regard to regular businesses? 
I mean, everybody's affected by this, right? Yes, of course. What we're getting, you can see this in the latest uh, the Detroit uh, sales statistics, or you know, any you can take any industry you want. In the case of the United States, everybody knows that the backbone of the U.S. economy in terms of of production is auto, and auto couldn't be worse. So we've just had these absolutely devastating collapse uh, of uh, the the sales of Ford, GM, Chrysler. Um, Chrysler has already been taken over by a hedge fund and is being destroyed. Ford and GM are hanging on, but it's thought that they'll go bankrupt soon. I suppose for the average for the average American, if General Motors goes bankrupt, then you'll know that you're in a world economic depression, and maybe that will be a, a moment when when people will understand something. Well, now There's also a contraction. Though. Let me let me distinguish. I've been talking so far almost exclusively in the world of this financial paper. However, there's also the world of plant, equipment, jobs, wages, employment, uh, you know, supermarket purchases, gasoline pumps, and everything else. Now, what's the consequence for this quadrillion of derivatives? In other words, the, the crisis of the derivatives then obviously kicks over and has a tremendous impact on the world of real economics, and it's just devastating. One thing is these chain reaction bankruptcies. I mean, you, you, know, you turn on the TV, listen to the economics uh, channels, and the only thing they're talking about is layoffs, plant closings, firings. In other words, we've had uh, seven or eight months of shrinking employment, even in this crazy service-oriented post-industrial rubble economy that we've got. Even that is now collapsing. And the, the few industrial jobs that are left are being decimated. That would be mainly Detroit, in other words, the big three automakers, if we can still call them that, and the uh, the the subcontractors of those these things like Delco right the people who make the parts for the for the automobile companies all of that is is collapsing so uh, there's a there's a, a contraction of the real economy that I wrote about in that paper uh, um, helicopter Ben unleashes dollar hyperinflation I went and looked at freight car loadings um, of, on the railroads uh, the ton miles of the trucking industry. That's that's where you can see a, a real uh, economic downturn. I ought to go back and look at that uh, as soon as, as possible because I'm sure that's in decline. You've had seven or eight months of, of declining jobs, and then you've got this question of hyperinflation. Um, what you see in the oil price is in a context, at least, of general hyperinflation. You've got hyperinflation of food prices, hyperinflation of fuel, energy, uh, and raw materials. Now, you always have violent corrections within that. In other words, we had the oil price got up almost to 150, and now it's back down to 125. That's normal. In other words, when you have uh, you know, a huge speculative hysteria, it goes through these moments of panic and correction. That's sort of what we've just had. But the march of hyperinflation, as far as I can see, uh, continues. I'd like to talk specifically about the role of inflation in the in the oil and gasoline prices, though, because I think that's that's significant. But Jim, let me just get back to the derivatives because this is where the problem is coming from. That is what is strangling the real economy in terms of energy, uh, employment, wages, uh, you know, productive investment in the United States. There there is none, and there hasn't been any in terms of plant and equipment for for many a moon. What do you do about the derivatives? The approach that they've taken is when they saw that, uh, that Bear Stearns was about to blow up, they tried to lend them money. They set up a special lending facility for Bear Stearns. didn't help. You couldn't lend them enough. They were going to be insolvent because, again, black holes can't be, they can't be treated in that way. You've got to have some you know, super-duper 
uh, ray that's going to deal with a black hole. But you can't you can't deal with Bear Stearns by giving them more money. They just get more more bankrupt. You you cannot have them you know one bank buying up another because that it just takes the derivatives to someplace else and then eventually there'll be a day of reckoning for for J P Morgan Chase. The only way to deal with derivatives is to wipe them out. In other words, if Bear Stearns is in crisis, it should be seized. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the controller of the currency, uh, the Commodity Futures Trading Corporation, the Securities and Exchange Commission should get together and say, okay, Bear Stearns, we are seizing you. And then what do you do? If they're bankrupt, probably, you know, you can find that out in five minutes. They are. You put them through Chapter 11. Now, in the course of Chapter 11 bankruptcy, you distinguish among their asset classes. You can say, boys, you've got a prime brokerage that could work. You've got, you know, some mortgage stuff over here that's sort of half and half. But you've got this derivatives book. You at Bear Stearns, you've probably got $100 trillion or $150 trillion of derivatives. You know what we're going to do with that book? We're going to shred it. We're going to delete it. We're going to wipe it out. We're going to say, this is of no value. It's gone. Yeah, but what about the counterparties of that? Well, you know, the people who are on the other end of those deals, they'll just have to take cold turkey. Uh, most of these derivatives were illegal in the United States until uh, the early to mid-1990s. It was Greenspan, in his infinite wisdom, who uh, essentially uh, allowed these things. He reassured everybody that they would be legal, that they would stand up in court. But, uh, of course, Greenspan is not the Supreme Court. Uh, and, uh, above all, an activist president, Franklin D. Roosevelt at this point, would simply say, I'm directing these federal regulatory agencies to go and seize uh, Bear Stearns. Uh, a case we've just had is Lehman Brothers. Lehman Brothers was on the death watch. It was in the death spiral. As soon as Bear Stearns blew, everybody knew that Lehman Brothers was next. And, and they've been uh, you know, skirting the edge of, of the abyss now for, for many weeks. About two or three weeks ago, Lehman was about to go. And at that point, there was a big operation done by the Federal Reserve and this thing called the Plunge Protection Team, the President's Working Group on Financial Markets, to try to get the price of oil down. They obviously did some selling operations into that, and to get some stocks up, but above all, to get the money center banks up. There were, Citibank was in the middle to low teens. J.P. Morgan Chase was going down. Goldman was not far behind. Lehman Brothers was in bad shape. Merrill Lynch was in bad shape. Union Bank of Switzerland in very bad shape. So they, they were able to turn that around by this trick that they pull, they buy their futures of those stocks in Chicago, and if the Chicago futures go up, then the, the shares in, in New York follow through a kind of a, a mechanism that they've set up. They shouldn't do that. Lehman Brothers right now is obviously bankrupt. It should be seized. You shouldn't wait around. You shouldn't try to bail it out. You shouldn't you know, send good money after the bad down this kind of a rat hole. Seize it, put it through Chapter 11 bankruptcy, and above all, wipe out that derivatives book. Now, what you just described of the plunge protection team, that's how they manipulate the price? This was instituted. I think I'm the person who wrote about this before anybody in the world. It's in my Bush biography, which you can see online, the unauthorized biography of George H.W. Bush. I write about something called the Brady system of drugged markets. Now, Brady uh, was on his way to be the secretary of the Treasury for Bush the Elder. Uh, right after the crash of 87, 20 years ago, more, uh, Brady 
uh, did a study group, or he, he was the figurehead of a study group from Goldman Sachs and these other places, that studied what had happened between the New York stock market and these new, at that time, new futures markets in Chicago, right, at the Chicago Boards Option Exchange, Chicago Board of Trade, and Chicago Merck. They had instituted this futures trading, which at that time was something was something new. It had started about 1981, 1982. So there was a relation between these two. The finding, and I, I, I saw this on television at the time, in a, a cold day with snow on the ground in January of 1988, Brady came out and said, okay, we, we've got this study. It's a big blue book. I've still got it up here in my room. It's a study of, of what happened in 1987. The thing that they concluded from this was the following, that if you can keep the price of the Chicago future Above the price of the New York stock, the program trader will sell the future, why pay more, and buy the stock, meaning that with $10 million in Chicago, you can updraft the New York market to the tune of several hundred million, and in Chicago, you're operating under an even laxer uh, regime in terms of margin and other stuff, because there it's the Commodity Futures Trading Corporation, which is practically non-existent, and in New York it's the Securities and Exchange Commission, which is only pathetically weak. So it's even, it's even easier to do hanky-panky in the Chicago side, because the SEC isn't there. It's the CFTC. Uh, that's this guy Cox, if you've, if you've seen him uh, in his pathetic uh, antics. Uh, so... That, that's how they do it, and that's called the plunge protection team. And they've, they've done you know, different ways of doing that, and they've, they've refined that, I'm sure. But well, you, we, you know, when you, when you say that these uh, uh, hedge funds, derivatives, some of these investment banking firms should be allowed to go bankrupt. Not and, allowed. They should be seized. Well, they are bankrupt. See, this is the problem. They're bankrupt, and they're pretending not to be. It used to be. I'll tell you an example. In the early 1990s, Citibank was seized. It was seized. Uh, Thanksgiving 1991, I believe it is. I can check the date. Uh, Citibank was, in effect, uh, insolvent. John Dingell, congressman of Michigan, still around, said Citibank is technically insolvent. When he said that, there was a panic run on the Citibank branches in, uh, in Hong Kong where people were more attuned to this kind of stuff. Well, what does it mean to say that a bank is seized? What do it they do if they... The regulators come in and they say, guess what, executives? We're running the show and you're going to do what we want. And if you don't, we have the uh, federal marshals here to take you away. Well, if they're bankrupt, what do you do with them? Yeah, what if they're bankrupt? What if they're really bankrupt and they're pretending not to be because they're getting money from Helicopter Ben at the Federal Reserve to mask the fact that they're bankrupt? See, at a certain point, a regulatory regime, this is the difference between a real presidency and a real government, a Franklin D. Roosevelt, New Deal, activist, interventionist, potent kind of thing, and this, this monstrosity that we have today. Bush is not going to do that. Who's going to do that? You think Bush's SEC chairman is going to, uh, to seize, or, or FDIC is going to start seizing banks? They, they won't do it. Well, that's just what I was going to say. I mean, you can talk about what they should do, but that is not what they're doing. No, of course not. They're doing the opposite. That, that's what I'm saying. I want to contrast, though, the option of their doing what they don't do, because this is what people forget, is that most of these, practically all, of the so-called investment banks, it means Goldman Sachs, Lehman Brothers, uh, Merrill Lynch, uh, Morgan Stanley, they should be seized at this point because they are uh, insolvent by any, any measure. Instead, what we've had is helicopter Ben Bernanke and the Federal Reserve coming forward and saying, we have special 
discount windows for you. We have special lending facilities. They have one called TAF or TAFI, uh, which is uh, it's an acronym, and that's that goes until uh, until September, until next month, and they're going to have to renew that in some form. What they've done is come in and use the credit uh, generating capabilities of the Federal Reserve to deal with the derivatives crisis, which is simply out of control. It, it cannot be treated in this way. In other words, everything they're doing will not work, and everything they're doing stokes hyperinflation, because they have now injected how many trillions of dollars since last August? I've lost count, but we're in the many, many, many trillions of dollars. I'm speaking with author and economic historian Webster Tarpley. Today's show, The Bush World Economic Depression. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, there is, of course, in the middle of it, something more uh, acute, and that is the price of gasoline. Let's just talk about that for a second, because this, this is the place now where the average, average American has realized that there is such a thing as speculation. We had Congressman Bart Stupak of, of uh, Michigan held some very useful hearings. And actually, you can find out about these, of all places, at Nancy Pelosi's uh, website, the speaker.gov, I think it's called. She's got a blog on there. And if you go back, uh, you know, some, some weeks, I guess about a month now, Stupak had a bunch of actual experts in the oil market come in and talk about speculation. Now, this is a case study of how derivatives are used to rob the average person. You've got to understand, when you go to the pump and you pay that $4, dollars $5 for a gallon of gas, you are subsidizing the derivatives bubble. You're, you're paying into one quadrillion plus of derivatives. Yes, it's true the oil cartel does rob as much as they can, but that's nothing compared to what Goldman Sachs does and these, and these Wall Street characters. They had a guy on there called uh, Geith, his name was, uh, from Oppenheimer. He's the, the oil expert from Oppenheimer. And uh, Geith got on there and said, look, everything over 70 to $80 a barrel is pure speculation. So when he made those remarks, it meant that the other 70 or so above that was pure speculation. In other words, a parity price for oil. In other words, a price that reflects the actual cost of production, transportation, refinement, uh, and everything else, plus a reasonable profit margin of what five, six, seven, eight percent would get you up to seventy or eighty dollars a barrel for oil. The rest of it is pure speculation. Now, how did they do this? Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley decided that the conditions on the New York uh, Mercantile Exchange and the New York Commodity Exchange, the New York Comex in particular were too regulated. They didn't like that. So they decided to create an offshore oil market, which is called ICE, the Intercontinental Exchange in London. Now, again, the U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Corporation is non-existent. That was regulating the, the New York uh, Merck and the New York Comex. But in London, <laughs> it's actually, what can we call it, negative regulation. I guess the regulators are the, the accomplices of the criminal uh, speculators and gougers, I guess. That's the only thing I can say. I'm looking for good metaphors and hyperboles to describe how, how much worse it is in London, even, than it is uh, in the CFTC regime. They created the ICE, the Intercontinental Exchange. This now handles 
about half of the oil futures contracts and the oil futures futures indices in the world. And uh, again, it's a creation of Goldman Sachs and of Morgan Stanley. And this is where you have this process of relentlessly bidding up the price. They used to have paper barrels of oil. The paper barrels were, uh, you know, barrels that existed on paper. They now have what they call video barrels, barrels of oil that don't exist, but are there only as speculative counters for you to buy and sell. So you've got to figure that every gallon that you've gotten out of your pump has been bought and sold 50, 100, 500, 1,000 times before it gets to you. And you've got to imagine this. Goldman Sachs reported a profit of $2 billion plus in the last quarter. Now, you've got to figure the losses for Goldman Sachs in the area of uh, subprime mortgages, mortgages, other kinds of paper, must be in the range of, what, $10 billion a quarter, God knows what, $15 billion per quarter. So what you see at the end, in other words, you can't get into the internal accounting practices of Goldman Sachs. They say our net profit is $2 billion. But that means that they must have had, you know, uh, let's just take a, I'll take a hypothetical case because I can't know these things. They must have gotten 20 or $30 billion out of oil speculation to offset losses of 15 to 20 billion or 25 billion in their other operations. In other words, it is essentially the speculation in oil that's keeping Goldman Sachs and, and Morgan Stanley similarly uh, afloat. Do you get the idea? Yes, and these uh, people that run these companies are the same people that are running the government, right? Yeah, Henry Paulson, the Secretary of the Treasury, is from Goldman Sachs. Uh, Robert Rubin, who seems to be the uh, you know, the leading economic light for uh, Obama, of course, is from Citibank. Citibank is, uh, again, they got down into the low teens. When Citibank goes into the teens, and with the stock price, you know that the entire banking system is in trouble. Citibank, compared to J.P. Morgan Chase, it's closer to uh, crisis at any given moment, although really the derivatives exposure of J.P. Morgan Chase is, is also, well, as we said, huge. It's the biggest derivatives power in the world. So, th yes, they run the government. But the idea would be this. You're dealing with a situation where you have this intercontinental exchange. Now, according to strict U.S. law, any barrel of oil that's going to end up in the U.S. has to be traded under a regime which is compatible, coherent with the U.S. regulatory regime. So they're violating the law. And this Bush regime is doing nothing. This is what I would recommend to deal with this. First of all, don't allow offshore trading of, of oil. And then they'll say, oh, but the liquidity, uh, the market, right? You can turn on these right-wing uh, characters like Limbaugh and Hannity. They're going to tell you speculators are good, speculators are wonderful, don't worry about speculators. Um, but, of course, you should. You should basically re-regulate these markets. Now, how would you re-regulate them? Uh, the main thing to do with derivatives is to wipe them out. In other words, the best thing would be an executive order saying all derivatives, and then you explain what they are, are hereby illegal. They're null and void. They always were illegal. And I'm directing the Justice Department now to systematically go after everybody who is trading in these derivatives. Uh, that would be good. The way that I propose to do it is to tax them. Just take an idea. What's the sales tax in California? Seven, eight percent? Yeah, at least. It might okay. Maybe 825. Okay, you're paying 825 on everything you buy. Does that apply to groceries? 
No. Probably not. But shoes, clothing, back to school, notebooks for your kids, a computer, yeah. So you're paying 8.25 on that. You know what Wall Street and Chicago pay on the turnover of these markets? There's no sales tax. There's a New York City sales tax. If you go and buy a, uh, a ham sandwich in a deli on Wall Street, you're going to pay, uh, I guess in New York, what is it, 5 6 7%. Uh, but then you can go in, into the uh, trading floor on Wall Street and you can do swindles for trillions and you don't pay a penny. So I would just say this. If the rest of us poor characters out here are paying sales tax, uh, I'm lucky Maryland is a reasonable state. We have 5% not on groceries. If you're living over in Virginia, that's bad. You're paying 6 or 7% and the groceries are included. That's where it really mounts up, right, when you pay it on, on uh, you know, basic food purchases. So you'd say to these Wall Street guys, can't you pay your fair share? Can't you at least pay 1% on your turnover? <laughs> now, that sounds reasonable. I think anybody can understand that. If I, if I come to you and say derivatives should be outlawed, some people may not understand. They may, be, they may feel threatened. They may feel uh, big government is in play. Let's just do the, we'll do the populist argument, which is always the, the basic one of uh, morality, in my view, anyway. Let's have Wall Street pay a 1% turnover tax. It's called the Tobin tax. Tobin was a professor of economics, James Tobin of Yale. He said, let's have a turnover tax on foreign exchange markets, right? international currency trading. It should be imposed there as well. All markets, uh, stocks, bonds, futures, derivatives, indices, uh, you, you name it, and existing derivatives contracts. Uh, Tobin talked about it as a way to slow down speculation, to make speculation less attractive. That would be a public benefit. But just the idea that, that these Wall Street financial dealers should pay their fair share. They should pay something. I would call that a securities transfer tax. Securities transfer tax, or STT. I'm speaking with author and economic historian Webster Tarpley. Today's show, The Bush World Economic Depression. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, let's, let's just go back to how do you deal with speculation. You've got to shut down places like the London ICE. You've got to impose a securities transfer tax on all derivatives. Imagine $6.5 trillion coming into the federal coffers. Now, that would be the first year because a lot of this derivative stuff would dry up. But that would be most welcome. Um, then, what do you do? The oil cartel, they do gouge. I mean, it's clear. Exxon Mobil and company, they gouge. There should be a windfall profits tax proposed originally by Senator Clinton. You could also, of course, uh, abolish the federal 18-cent-per-gallon gasoline tax that was imposed under, under Bill Clinton when he fell under the spell of Greenspan when he, when he came to Washington in the 90s. But you'd, you'd want to have, a, um, I would say, a, uh, something like a 50% tax on the windfall profit of the, of the oil cartel. Another thing you need to do is to go into Wall Street and say, if you have speculative profits based on speculation in the energy industry, that's wonderful. We're taking 75% of everything you get out of that. So you've got essentially a special tax on energy speculation per se. What is the likelihood that any of these measures would actually be instituted? <laughs> I, I don't know. It, on the surface, it's not very high. But then again, uh, we're in a, uh, a time of rapid changes. So uh, just the fact of putting these ideas out... This would be the New Deal in action. In other words, these are, these are all classical 
New Deal measures somewhat brought up to date. These are the only measures that will work. In other words, if you want to get out of a world depression, these things will work. They did work. They are tried and true. None of what I've said is really very uh, new. None of it is speculative. None of it is pie in the sky. This is all stuff that has stood the test of time. It's been done before. We've done it before. We could do it again. All you need is this uh, New Deal approach. And the general idea is that the, the power of bankers and speculators has become preponderant. Uh, unfortunately, you look at the Obama campaign, Goldman Sachs is his biggest single uh, donor. He's got Rockefeller, Soros, Goldman Sachs in his corner. When Obama had his meeting of economic conchos this past week, he had Robert Rubin of Citibank and the Hamilton Project on one side of him, and on the other side, Amazing. I don't know. He thinks people have a short memory. Paul Adolf Volcker of the Federal Reserve, trilateral Rockefeller man, used to be the, um, the pound director of the U.S. Uh, Treasury, the guy whose job it was to keep the pound from collapsing. So he had close connections to the British. Yes, I saw that picture in the paper of, uh, of uh, Barack Obama sitting next to Paul Volcker. I was With kind Ruben, of surprised. and Ruben yeah. was on the other side. Now, that's, that would be bad PR if people, if people had any historical... Uh, yeah, I was, su- I was surprised to see that. Could you talk a little bit about how we got here? I mean, a whole series of safeguards that had been established to prevent a repeat of the financial and economic disasters of the 1930s were, were dismantled, Right. Yes, of course. That's what when Newt Gingrich came into power in 1994-95, he basically said, "There's a quote from him. He says the purpose of my life has been to roll back the New Deal and to undo the work of Franklin D. Roosevelt." Now, let's also remember when you can say New Deal and Franklin D. Roosevelt, but that's also the sit-down strikes in Detroit. That's the Toledo Auto Light strike. That's the San Francisco General Strike. That's the Minneapolis General Strike. In other words. That is a series of labor struggles that allowed this to happen. In other words, Roosevelt was able to do these things because, in effect, he had a mass movement to lean on. In other words, he had labor pushing him, demanding that he do it, and he could you know, go to his uh, you know, political uh, opponents and, and, and the Wall Street group, the Morgan group that hated him, and say, look, I have to do this because this is what the, uh, what the people are uh, are demanding, and they're organized, and they're militant. And if you don't do this now, it's going to be worse for you later on, because they'll, they'll come after you. That, by the way, just so people remember, remember that the Morgan Group essentially uh, is the prime suspect in the attempted assassination of Franklin D. Roosevelt in Miami between the 1932 landslide victory and the March 1933 uh, inaugural address. And then right after that, on the same day, right, the bank holiday the fireside chats and getting the U.S. Uh, out, of the, uh, out of the depths of the Depression, where it had gone under Herbert Hoover. And then, later on, the Morgan Group uh, attempted to organize a march on Washington in imitation of Mussolini's March on Rome. And they were going around looking for suitable demagogues, and they, they thought of MacArthur, and then they tried Smedley Butler. And Smedley Butler then told the public what, what, uh, what they'd done. So, Wall Street and the Morgan Group hated Roosevelt, and that hatred is what you see in in, uh, Bush today, because Bush is the grandson, after all, of Prescott Bush, who with Harriman and Brown Brothers Harriman go right back to that Morgan Group in Wall Street in the 1930s. In other words, a pro-fascist, Roosevelt-hating group. So for many reasons, but above all for these economic structural reasons that you've just said, the reactionary Republican clique 
uh, has has attempted to to dismantle this stuff. And you know, they Clinton, unfortunately, Clinton uh, during his presidency. What's the idea of of abolishing? Welfare, in other words, aid to families with dependent children, which is a feature of the Social Security Act of 1935. How come we could pay for this in 1935 in a world economic depression, and we couldn't afford it in the mid-90s? Well, now, also, didn't they do away with, I guess the SEC did away with the down-tick, up-tick rule? I right. Mean, you well, could... that, that was, that's about a year ago that became an issue. That's the, uh, the irony of it is... Um, that, I mean, you can short the the stock market when it's going down. Yeah, now. you can short the stock market when it's going down. Now, that was a rule that was based on much sad experience during the 1930s. And that that was, you could call that the last vestige of New Deal regulation in the financial markets. Well, not really, because the Securities and Exchange Commission is still there, at least in theory it's still there. But this uptick rule was you couldn't keep shorting as the stuff went down. And that had been abolished in the summer of last year. And then these characters realized, oh, my gosh, we have now taken away something that was protecting us from ourselves, and now we're destroying ourselves. <laughs> so even in, even in their own way, they, they, they realized the, the folly of what they were doing. The basic idea, though, is re-regulation, a comprehensive re-regulation. Uh, now, you've talked at a length about some of the Depression-era New Deal legislation uh, that, if, you know, Social Security, obviously, and, and re-regulation of a lot of the financial markets. But what about World War II? I mean, wasn't it World War II that really uh, brought the country out of the Depression? I mean, that's a scary thought. I wouldn't put it that way, because uh, it, it, war does not lead automatically to economic recovery. If that were true... Bush the Younger would have caused an economic recovery. Instead, he caused an economic depression. In other words, you start the Afghan war and the Iraq war, that would normally, you know, if war were the thing, then you should have prosperity as a result of that. And, of course, you don't. So you've got to go back and look at it. Uh, unemployment in the United States, in spite of everything Roosevelt was able to do, he kept people in their homes, he kept produ- food production up, uh, and he created... Uh, he, he created the beginnings of a recovery, which was then sabotaged by the Morgan Group itself. In other words, they engineered, they went short in 1936-37 and created another downtick in the financial markets. They, they were trying to get, you know, Roosevelt's, uh, you know, they were trying to get him politically. They, in, in the 36 election, he had uh, scared the hell out of them. But g- generally speaking, unemployment remained high until... Lend-Lease. Now, Lend-Lease is, the U.S. is not at war. Uh, Lend-Lease is the moment where the credit system is essentially uh, nationalized in the way that I would recommend today. In other words, what you'd want to go back to is, a, in effect, the, the same credit mechanisms you had under Lend-Lease. In late 1940, Roosevelt made this famous garden hose speech saying, look, you know, we've got to send stuff to the British here. Uh, we don't care about getting paid, right? If my neighbor's home is on fire, I'll lend him my garden hose so we can fight the fire. Otherwise, the fire may spread to me. And when it's all over, I don't care about getting paid. I just, you know, maybe you can give me the garden hose back. So this was a, a, a masterful piece of explanation. This led to Lend-Lease. Now, what it meant was that uh, if you had a defense contract, you got a vendor number on there. You could take it to the local Federal Reserve or bank, uh, you could take it to your local bank, and they had to give you credit on that. And then you took that to the, the bank could take it to the Federal Reserve, which was legally compelled or politically compelled to uh, to to uh, to discount it. 
just remember, Roosevelt is the only president who de facto nationalized the Federal Reserve. And he did this, frankly, through blackmail. He said to Mariner Eccles and these other people, you know, you're so hated, I could nationalize you legally, formally. I could seize you. But I won't do it. This was a mistake. He should have done it. This is actually one of the biggest mistakes Roosevelt made in terms of his um, his legacy, so to speak. Uh, I could seize you, but I won't. But here's what I'll do. I'm going to call you when the Treasury brings a note to market. I'm going to tell you the interest rate that you're going to buy it at. In other words, I'm, I'm going to nationalize you in this informal way. So during the war, the money supply and the interest rates were essentially dictated by the by Roosevelt through his various uh, aides and experts, and the Federal Reserve operated as a bureau of the Treasury, and that meant that we went through uh, World War II and and beyond into the late 40s and early 50s with extremely low interest rates. In other words, if you look at the the average interest rates on on short-term Treasury bills, they're less than one percent. So you're getting down to the area that you want to be where the interest rate really corresponds to the administrative cost of, of, of administering the loan, sort of 1% to 2% credit. Any kind of credit above 1% to 2% credit is, is vastly overpriced because it's gouging. Well, how would you compare that to what's going on today? Yeah, today it's the opposite. As I said, today we have preferential credit rates for bankrupt banks and bankrupt investment houses. So they get low-cost credit or at least lower-cost credit, they go to these special discount windows, special TAF, another uh, term lending facility, uh, term rollover facility, term bailout facility, whatever they call them. They have all these acronyms uh, in this set of things that Bernanke has set up. Uh, if you, if you want to do speculation, you get low-cost low credit. But if, you're, if you wanted to create plant and equipment and hire some people and produce useful goods that people have got to have to live, then you, then you take your chances in the market. It should be the other way around. Interest rates are generally way too high. Uh, Wright Patman of Texas was a great uh, populist uh, a congressman, an enemy of the Federal Reserve, and he said, you know, they, the Federal Reserve has been sending interest rates into orbit here for decades. The difference was the nationalization of the Federal Reserve kept going until about 1951, uh, during the Korean War, uh, Truman expected the Federal Reserve to go back to the wartime regime. At that point, the Federal Reserve said, no, Truman, you're too weak. You're a Wall Street puppet. You're not Roosevelt. We knew Roosevelt. You're no Roosevelt. We're not afraid of you. We're going to reassert our right to do what we want based on the banking community and the national interest be damned. That was about 1951-52. Since then, the Federal Reserve has been running wild. The only answer is to nationalize the Federal Reserve. And again, if you want to criticize Roosevelt, criticize him for this. This is what he deserves. He should be criticized for not nationalizing the Federal Reserve when he could have uh, at se several points in his presidency. I mean, obviously in 1933, he could have, he could have done it, uh, and he should have done it. But he decided not to because he was, he was afraid of the blowback from the Morgan Group, who, after all, were apparently trying to... Uh, to bump him off and to uh, and to hit him with a, a coup d'état, right? So he he had reason to uh, to fear that, and uh, if they'd been stronger, they might have succeeded. So he shied away from that, and that is why we are now in this uh, situation. Webster Tarpley, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure.
I've been speaking with Webster Tarpley. Today's show has been The Bush World Economic Depression. Webster Tarpley is an author, economic historian, investigative journalist, and lecturer. Tarpley is author of 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, Against Oligarchy, a collection of essays and speeches from the years 1970 to 1996, and co-author of George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography. He is also author of Surviving the Cataclysm, A Study of the World Financial Crisis, Your Guide Through the Greatest Financial Crisis in Human History. Webster Tarpley's latest book, Obama, The Postmodern Coup, The Making of a Manchurian Candidate, is available at Amazon.com. Soon to be published is Obama, The Unauthorized Biography. Visit his website at www.tarpley.net. That's T-A-R-P-L-E-Y dot N-E-T. Email him at tarpley at tarpley.net. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaro Mako. Our engineer is Bonnie Bone. To leave comments or order copies of the show, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Our website, www.gunsandbutter.net, is under reconstruction. Peace.